Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Aesthetics Mastery Show. I'm Dr. Tim Pierce. I'm Randa Pierce. And we are talking today about the coronavirus and how to go into it with the right mindset to help you thrive in times of difficulty. We're also doing a clinical deep dive on cannula versus needle. When should I use a cannula and when should I stick with a needle? So where are we starting first? Let's just dive into cannulas. Okay. If that's a safe thing to do. So I've got... Um, Georgie calls this, said to me as I was leaving, um, keep your eyes peeled. And I said, no, this is my peeled eye. <laughs> Georgie loves the pun. That's how so, colleague it's giving me training. So this is really what it, where it all starts with needle versus cannula, because the primary reason to use cannulas is that we're reducing trauma. They're actually, there are some other reasons that may be a little bit less painful in some areas of the face, but it's all about reducing trauma. So this is the context we need to understand the use of cannulas, which is the blood vessels primarily underneath the face, and it's all about not penetrating those blood vessels. So if whenever you're deciding, it's usually on that basis of which is going to cause less trauma to those blood vessels. But it's a little bit more complex than that, which is that there's this issue with analog versus digital weighing up of risk, as I see it. So people like to know, is it needle? Is it cannula? that's safer. And the problem is there, there are different payoffs depending on which, which device and which area of your face. So it just simply isn't that simple. Um, if you think about what the, the difference is in terms of the physics between a needle and a cannula, it's all about the pressure at the tip. So what a needle basically is, is a force multiplier. If you actually work out the pressure on the tip of a needle, this is just with a needle standing on its end, um, the weight of a needle with a, maybe a, a syringe of one mil in it, actually has 750 million pascals of force underneath the tip of that needle, just with its own weight. Now, if you want to put that in context, the weight uh, of an elephant standing on your foot is about 53,000. So it's many times more force underneath the tip of a needle. That's what a needle is. It's a force multiplier. So what does a cannula do? It basically spreads out some of that force. And what it means is it's, not a, it's about 100 times different, roughly, according to my um, back of the napkin mathematics, about 100 times difference in the amount of force you, you, you would require to penetrate the skin. So that means if you're resting the tip of your needle on an artery, you need 100 times less force than with a cannula to go in. So you really have to give it some shove with a cannula. But that doesn't mean you cannot put a cannula into a vessel. And this is what people get wrong, is they think, if I'm using a, a cannula, I can't get into a vessel. And unfortunately, the truth is really different. And some of the worst cases of occlusion are actually from cannula treatments. The reason for that uh, we might get into, but it's to do with the amount of filler that you're injecting in each area and the, the places that cannulas are often used. So is the, I know you say that there isn't a simple way to decide whether a particular area is a needle or a cannula, but are there some rules of thumb? For example, help me out with lips. Is that what, what is best? Because you see, interestingly, there are some big Instagram accounts that I see who say they're only, they only use cannula on the lips. So what's the pros and cons of cannula for lips? The biggest difference between a needle and a cannula the, is the blunt tip. Now, if the blunt tip means it's less, you're less able to put it where you want to go because it will follow the path of least resistance. So if you're using a cannula to replace volume in a lip, it'll probably work quite well. You can slide the cannula in to the lip envelope and you can replace the volume. However, if you want to try and get some detail on the vermilion border, 
you're going to struggle because it, it's impossible to get it to the same level superficially without you know, 100 times more force. So your client will be deeply uncomfortable. You're basically tearing through the tissues. So that doesn't really happen. Very few people will attempt to put a cannula in the vermilion border. They're mainly putting it in the body of the lip, which means you're putting the filler in a totally different place. So when you see, for example, this big Instagram account saying that they've only used a cannula, is that because that person didn't need definition in the border? Yeah, most wow. likely. If, they've, if a young person has got really good definition and some older people hold on to their definition well, you might, only be able to, you might be able to get away with just treating volume. So you add volume and they look better. They get a bit of swelling, the picture looks great. But it is different to, uh, with people who need a bit more definition. So there is no one tool for every job you need the best tool for each job. So a needle might be better at adding definition. Certainly if you're going to do the filtrum, not many people would dare do that with a cannula because it's much more traumatic and going to probably be too deep to create the shape we're looking for. So let's say that I'm a practitioner and I'm approaching, let's say, a cheek. I'm trying to weigh up which instrument to use. Um, okay, so the first question is, what is the anatomy around that area that's dangerous that you don't want to injure? So if you're thinking about cheeks, just underneath the cheek is the big nerve plexus, and there's also your transverse facial artery. Um, there's sometimes your zygomatic facial artery just above that cheekbone, and they will both run parallel to the zygoma, but they're probably not on the zygoma. So that's helpful to know. Um, so there are three structures there that you don't want to, you don't want to injure, the two, two main blood vessels and the nerve plexus underneath the, underneath the bone. And that, that will then, that's your first step in then deciding where is the filler going to be placed and what's the what's the compromise that I make so once you've decided what you don't want to injure is where do you want where is the best place for the filler to get the aesthetic result that you want and there are different schools of thought but most people suspect that if you place it deep on the bone we're trying to emulate the bone anyway that's what a cheek is is your zygoma primarily so if you place it deep it'll be more stable it won't move as easily it'll hold its shape slightly better and certainly on, cad on cadaver courses where we've tried this, when you place it deep, it does seem to hold, be a rounder shape. Um, and you can see that it's further, it's not nowhere near the vessels, which is the main reason you do on the cadaver course. You're trying to figure out the risk so that you can decrease the chance of complications. But it also seemed to maintain its shape better. When placed in the layers of the fat, which is what you do with the cannula, seem to be a little bit flatter. There are, there are she sheets of fat. And if you're in between, you don't, you don't get a, a round shape. It tends to be a flatter shape. So that's going to affect your aesthetic result. So you might get less of a good result, maybe slightly less stable, maybe a little bit more easy to move if you lean on it with a cannula. Um, but you may decide that that's, that's less likely to injure a blood vessel, so you might decide to do that. Um, it, it's possible. It's hard to weigh it up exactly. It's very hard to be sure. But that's the type of thinking is, does the... Do, does the increase in safety decrease my aesthetic result to such an extent that I would rather have a slightly higher risk but for a better result mm -hmm. or can you achieve something that's the same result with less with more safety because that's what we should always be trying to do but it's never that simple usually there's an aesthetic payoff like you get a slightly worse result with some slightly safer treatments something that i've noticed has definitely changed over the 12 years that we've been in business is customer education now, when we first started, no one would ever say, oh, well, you're using a cannula for that. But now some people do come equipped with that question. How do you navigate customers having preferences? A really good question. The, the, the number one thing whenever your client comes in and says, I want it a certain way, is you've got to understand their reasoning. So, I mean, back in the day, this happened, hasn't happened for a long time, but a lot of people would say, I don't want Botox because that's rat poison. 
And if you just ignore them and do filler for their frown lines, you're probably taking doing a risky procedure that's less likely to get them the result they want for a reason that isn't even real. So you need to establish your the health beliefs as the GP way of describing it. What are the health beliefs of your patient so that you can um, disentangle those? Now, sometimes it's just a preference. Like the, the good example of that is, oh, I just don't like the thought of a needle. And there's not much you can say about that. You can give them the reasons why you might prefer to use uh, the needle versus the cannula, but ultimately, if it's just a, t- a taste thing, those ones are often hard to argue with because it's just a feeling they've got. Whereas, if it's something like the rat poison example, you can literally educate them and explain oh, it's warfarin that's rat, rat poison, it's not that. And although it's a toxin, you can describe how it works and how it's tested, and all those things might make them feel a lot safer. And then you shift their what they're happy to do because ultimately, that's what it's about. It's about you understanding their position and then changing their point of view by giving them more education on the topic. Are there any areas of the face that you will absolutely only do with one or the other? Probably in most areas it's variable. It depends on the, on the particular case. So there are actually very few. I've almost never treat foreheads with, with needles. There is a technique where you place it on the periosteum and you're relying on the depth of the vessel. I, I never quite liked that technique. I had a couple of people get little bumps for ages afterwards and I never wanted to use it again. So I think uh, probably forehead and uh, subdiagmatic area are my never compromise areas. And virtually every other area, um, I'll do a mixture depending on what I think is likely to work in each case. Do you do any patient education beforehand and sort of say, I'm going to be using X and this is what it's going to feel like? That might be different to how you've experienced it before. Uh, yes. So um, I usually do it, particularly when someone's worried about bruising. That might be one of the reasons why I'd lean towards a cannula. So if someone's particularly exercised by not getting any bruises, then I'm more likely to look for other ways to do things. Even if I think the needle might give the edge on the aesthetic result, I might lean towards cannula. Um, but then I need to educate them on what I'm doing. Because they may still get a bruise, so they need to understand the mechanism. So um, it's good. It's good to do that. If someone's never had a cannula before and they've had lots of aesthetic treatments with just needles, which many people are, if you don't explain, they're going to be a bit bewildered what's going on. So yeah, you should you should uh, articulate what you're doing, why it's different, why it feels different, why you think it's safer. They need to understand all the reasons why, or it just makes them feel uncertain. If something's different for no reason, it's it just it just creates question marks. So you need, to, um, you, need to, you need to explain it to them so that they feel certain with what you're doing. Tell us about a case where it was worse, that the occlu- an occlusion, a necrosis, was worse because it was a cannula. So if you're putting a cannula up, for example, to do a non-surgical rhinoplasty, you've got two blood vessels that run parallel with that cannula as you're sliding it up you also require a bit more force to go into that area. And I've seen a couple of really awful cases using cannula, and it's because of the higher force required. And there's one other really important factor to remember with all cannula treatments, which is once you're in the tissue, you tend, you, you tend to, to put quite a lot of volume in at once. So if you're imagining putting quite a lot of volume while you're trying to do the whole of the dorsum of the nose, you might inject half a mil of filler. And if half a mil of filler goes into one of those arteries, you're going to cause a massive occlusion. Now, you might be a little bit less likely to actually get a cannula into the vessel in the first place than a needle, but because you're there for so long, if you're unlucky enough to be in the vessel, huge amounts of filler goes in, so you can block off the whole of the vasculature in that part of the face, and then it's really hard to dissolve it, um, and you get a really awful scar. So um, that's the biggest difference. There are a lot of cases where really bad injuries have come from cannulas. So stroke, for example, I know of at least one case of uh, someone who died from a fat transfer 
but that was done with a, with a, with a cannula. A lot of plastic surgeons will use cannula during um, procedures, and they are injecting higher volumes too, but those cases are the worst. So stroke, blindness, they're actually probably a slightly higher number of cases than you'd expect with a cannula. And it's to do with the high volumes that you're putting in one place, I think. So it's it's less likely to go into the wrong place, but when it does, the consequences are much higher. That's the key difference. So how can we prevent against that? That's scary. So there's, there's a lot of analog skill that, that I think people forget. So but what I mean by that, digital is it's either needle or cannula, which one's safer. But there's a lot of analog stuff that's really hard to prove. Like there's, it's, inc- it's actually, I think, almost impossible to do a study that would prove this. But I'm pretty sure if you're a gentle injector and you're passing instruments slowly and feeling the resistance when you're up against something and trying to find another way around rather than just pushing through it, you're, in the course of your career, going to not get it into arteries more often. So that's what you want. So analog, there are other things you can do. So the mobility of your cannula is quite important. So if you're you're near a blood vessel and it's moving... um, you, you've got some reassurance that it's not in the vessel. I've tested this on a cadaver as well. If you put a cannula into a blood vessel and try and move it, it feels tethered. You can actually feel it's, it's stuck to something. So that's another thing you can do is when, you, when you're in a risky place with your cannula, check to see how, how mobile the tip is. And these little steps are imp- incredibly hard to prove because it's such a small number of people get occlusions, but it makes sense to me. We're working with the physics, not, the, not almost like the medical evidence base. It's if you're in something, is it likely to be mobile? Um, if you push more gently and you're, and you're trying to find your way carefully around structures rather than just shoving it in, you're probably less likely to get into a blood vessel. So hard to prove, but I think fairly obvious intuitively that those gentle injectors who, who are almost um, delicately placing their product rather than just plonking it in are going to have le- fewer occlusions over time. So next, we're going to tackle the corona. We're going to come back to the coronavirus because we actually tackled this last week, but the YouTube show takes a week to get out. So we're already, it's what day? It's the 13th of March today. And things have already massively progressed since we last spoke about it. Where are we at? So we, I think we had, at the time of recording exactly seven days ago, we had 119 cases. And now as of this recording, 798. And that's in just seven days. So it's quite frightening. Um, those numbers are quite small in the grand scheme of things, but the rate of change is not small at all, and it's the most important factor. So this is the bit that we need to think about as aesthetic business owners, is how are you going to deal with the adversity that comes from this? Particularly business adversity. Because I, we've been in business 12 years, and I remember even before we pretty much got into business, because you started injecting in February 2008, and then in the September the credit crunch happens, Lehman Brothers went down, and I had already made plans to come on full-time in the business the following April. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like this, my dream has already, you know, ended before it's begun. It was very scary. So how can we stop panicking and actually start focusing on building the business instead of thinking, oh, it's going to hell in a handcart? Well, this is the thing that we've learned through the hard way, which is that the, be- the worst times for us, when you look back, have been the start of the best times. So, and this would, I just want this to help everyone who's listening, whether you have an aesthetics business or some other type of business, that th- the way that you innovate when things are tough, because you respond positively to a dire situation, is going to, is going to change the trajectory of your business in a really good way. And we've seen this multiple times, at least four times I can think of, where we were on the back foot, 
we went away, we put our heads together and we came out with a new plan that actually gave us three or four years worth of great benefit. Um, and we're still doing that. So we're constantly trying to turn our adversity into our favor by, by being creative and changing direction and being a little bit fleet of foot. Mm-hmm. And it makes a huge difference. So um, if you take that on board and you listen to this and you're feeling a bit scared, um, th- remember that the, the best businesses do something in those bad times and they give them an advantage for years afterwards. So get on the front foot, think of positive things you can do, innovate, execute on new ideas and see what happens. And actually, it's let's say that you are sitting in your clinic and everyone's cancelled today, that is an opportunity to do the things that you've been saying, oh, I haven't got time for that. I haven't got time to get back to, you know, that that new client inquiry that came to me three weeks ago. You know, yeah, I replied to her once, but I never got back to her. Get back to her now. This is your opportunity. This is the time for you to hustle and actually show up for your business. It's, it's about providing the most amount of value. So what does that look like? What kind of things can people do, practical things, to add more value to their customers? Um, so, yeah, I love that. So the, the, the key thing is it's, it's doing the, some of the difficult stuff that you might put off. Because what I think is interesting about a time of fear is that some of your fears might suddenly look a bit smaller than not doing the thing. So if you're afraid of doing a Facebook Live, but now you're thinking, I haven't got enough clients to, to pay for my, my rent, my room rent, you might suddenly find you've got a little bit more energy to do some extra work. So take that energy and do something you've never done before. Um, some of the stuff is just hard. Like I think messaging people, going through every single inquiry you've ever had and messaging them back and trying to open a conversation and trying different ways of, of having that conversation, that's also hard because you're going to get rejected. Um, but if you keep going, you'll discover a way of getting a good response. And if, once you get people coming through the door, through your extra efforts, you've now become a different type of business owner. You've now got a whole new skill that you didn't have before this thing started. And this is really what the race is about in life. Can you stay on the front foot can you think of new ways of, of getting around problems or do you f- admit defeat as soon as things get yes. difficult? Yes. And don't admit, don't admit defeat. Don't stop blaming the economy or the virus. All of that stuff is just not in your favour. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we were just remembering last night that we built our business in 2008 and some of the strongest businesses apparently are built in times of recession, in times of adversity, in times of famine. And, you know, it, it makes you into a leaner, less entitled, more scrappy kind of business when you're willing to actually go out and hunt for that food and say, right, where are these customers? Let's go to a networking event. Let's set up an email newsletter. Let's actually do that website cheap. You know, don't go wild and have some really expensive website, but, you know, let's just go out there and just get like a, a basic cheap website so I'm not relying on Facebook all the time. Let's spread the risk. Let's get out there and be the kind of business people. Like you you become the kind of, per- in times like these, you become the kind of person that you need to be. Even if you aren't getting loads of clients coming through the door, you get the privilege, the chance to become the kind of business person who actually has the ability to bring those people through the door. So it's an incredibly powerful time. I think we just need to hold our nerve, not panic, and focus on adding value to the customers. And just remember the sector that you work in. I mean, we've had multiple cases where people have got pregnant, for example, and, and said, 
you know, we have a payment scheme and they said, don't stop my payment. I am coming back the moment that <laughs> I'm finished breastfeeding. This is not an arena where people just give up because they've run out of like a little bit of money. This is how people feel about going out into the world. They will still be having our treatments in six months time, even if the coronavirus gets way worse than we than we would want it to. Um, so the people who are out there on the front foot fighting for their business are going to do better. So we should keep going um, rather than feel bad about it and and hide so there was, in case you don't know, this effect that they called the lipstick effect during the Second World War. And what it was that they noticed is that people didn't stop buying lipstick, even though they had nothing for almost anything else. So they were literally short of food, but they would still buy a little bit of lippy. And the reason is, um, the way it's been explained, is that those small little things that make you feel in control of your appearance, like make you feel human again, is that kind of saying, they really matter to people in difficult times. Not It's, it's actually often that they matter more in difficult times. Um, and I've certainly seen seen this with patients. We often have people who come and see us right after really stressful times or during stressful times because feeling a little bit better in those moments. In fact, I had someone yesterday say, all this coronavirus stuff makes me feel a bit miserable. I thought I'd do something to make myself feel better. So you never know what's going what's gonna to become an advantage or a disadvantage for you. Some people will be feeling negative and need you to make them feel better. So get out there and earn those clients. 